0: Hi,
1: and welcome to our weekly podcast, Code Monkey Talks. It's about things that interest technologists. We're your co hosts. I'm Brian Jackson, and joining me is Brian Demers.
0: Hey, thanks, guys.
1: So um it, it's been a couple of weeks, uh, and so uh, I, we will probably get into a little bit of what's been going on. Um, but uh, before that, I just want to also join uh, or welcome our guest who's uh, joining us this week, which uh, is Pete Cheslock. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Pete. Thank you. Um, so yeah, it's been a couple of weeks, uh, life got in the way. Uh, I'm going to make sure that, uh, we don't have such a large break, uh, in the show, which, you know, some people may be listening to this, uh, coming back, um, you know, going through back, uh, episodes and not even realize that there was a break, but we've been off about a month at this point. And, um, you know, I went on vacation and, uh, Uh, Then I went to GDC, and then just life happened. Um, And uh, Brian, I know you've been busy with stuff too, but we're back.
0: That's right. We're back. We're back.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, so I'm excited. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Uh, And we've got a lot to talk about because there's... Like I said, it's been about a month uh, of stuff to cover. So um, we are um, broken into three segments. We have in, in the news where we're going to talk about some current events. Then uh, we'll have a deeper interview with Pete uh, about what he's working on. And uh, then we'll uh, finish it up with some something to do. You know, We'll leave uh, you, the listener, uh, with something to do after the show uh, in the hopefully week-long break uh, until our next episode. So um, why don't we get uh, to In the News? All right, so uh, our first segment is about current events, and we call it In the News. Uh, we'll each pick a news story uh, that we read about recently that we'd like to discuss. Uh, Brian, why don't you go first? What's your news?
0: All right, so I was traveling and I hadn't got a chance to to look at this, but the WikiLeaks Vault Seven, uh, and I think the other one's called like Dark Star, Darth, um, I forget. Anyway, the, the, there's other other Vault Seven content that was released today, and um, so for those unfamiliar, this is the the uh, CAA, you know, software exploit leak that happened uh, a few weeks ago, and the thing that strikes me. Uh, the most interesting of all of this, other than all of the the uh, you know actual exploits and all that, is the fact that it's it's just normal developer um, confluence. You know, wiki pages. There's there's talk on Git and how not to force push. Uh, there there's things on. on uh, I mean, you name it. There there's um, content um, about how they're using CI, and it's basically a full Atlassian stack. So, so they're using uh, Crowd, they're using Confluence, they're using—I I didn't see any mentions of Jira yet—but um, they're using Stash, which is which is Bitbucket. Um, it's just—it's wild. I mean, this is just normal developer stuff, and that's in hindsight, I guess that's what I should have been expecting, but I, I wasn't—you know—going into it. So, have you guys had a chance to look at this? I looked at it uh, pretty briefly. We were sharing uh, some of the stuff around the office,
2: and I think the thing that actually popped up uh, in one of our—we have like an off-topic uh, a chat uh, channel in our Slack—and one of the things that popped up was all of the emojis um, that they had in, you know, one of the documents, and it was like detailing out the—I don't know—it had to be hundreds of different, you know, emojis and you know UTF-8 character sets for representing, you know, smiley faces and stuff like that.
0: <laughs> That's great. I haven't seen that one yet. <laughs> I I saw one uh, that was like basically you know welcome to uh, whatever embassy or something, and it was you know do this when you get here. This is your cover story. This is this is what you should do. Ask people for advice on what to do over the weekends. Just total normally normal uh, you know first day at work stuff. It was it's neat.
2: Yeah, I feel like a lot of times, you know, there's, you know, this certain, you know, aura of of these organizations, you know, but you know, even with the Snowden stuff, um, yeah, I mean, he when there was, I feel like an interview maybe or something of him, um, a video of him talking before this whole thing happened, and it like the recording came out after, you know, and he's talking about like the kind of development work he does, and he's like, oh, I like I'm writing these tools with Ruby, and I wrote this Sinatra app, and it's like, oh well. A lot of people do that, you know, and it's like the way in which he got this data out, I think, was was from SharePoint, right? Like Microsoft SharePoint.
1: (laughs) Wow. Yeah, one of the things that, I you know, I saw in this leak was a a really interesting document called Why Most Unit Testing is Waste, uh, which obviously is is, um, a catchy title. Uh, It turns out that it's actually not it wasn't originally part of the leak. It just happened to be something that was. Uh, you know, I think saved locally on their systems because uh, as I was doing some searching uh, in prep for the show, I saw that that it, it was actually that's a document that existed outside of uh, WikiLeaks. Um, but it's a really interesting breakdown on uh, doing unit tests correctly. You know, which which you know while it's a catchy title to get you to to read it, um, you know that makes you think that it's just going to be like unit testing is the worst. Why would anybody do it? Uh, Instead, it's more about, you know, how people and probably a majority of the people uh, potentially do unit testing poorly, right? Where they're they're writing tests against code that doesn't um, really have any significance or uh, they're writing brittle tests or they're not keeping it up to date or they're not running it. Things like this that are, um, you know, I think really important as part of the, uh, you know, the testing cycle.
0: Yeah, I just had a, a discussion not too long ago at work about um, somebody not really thinking unit tests were were that important. Not so much that they're not important, but that they're they're uh, harder to maintain than something like integration tests, which are testing end to end functionality, which you know is also important. But um, you know, I think uh, our opi- where our opinions differed was favoring one versus the other. Not that they're they're both you know not needed, or one is you know needed over the other one.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, I think a lot of people that I've run into just who might not, you know, they might be earlier in their careers or uh, just haven't had a lot of experience with, with the testing side of things confuse or conflate like unit testing and functional testing and performance testing. You know, there's all these different layers of testing um, that you can put into a product if you've got the resources. And um you know, a lot of a lot of people are like, "Hey, that's somebody else's job," uh, and I think that's usually you know a developer who doesn't realize that unit tests are really about developers maintaining their own code and testing that they've they're delivering the pieces that that they think they're delivering um, versus. Functional testing or uh, capacity testing, which might be somebody, you know, like legitimately might be somebody else's job because, uh, you know, if you're a large team that has resources uh, to dedicate to those, uh, it might be somebody else's job in those positions.
2: What's interesting too about unit testing is I feel like, and I've I've had this conversation with a lot of, you know, more junior devs where they, they don't really get the point of it, I guess. And I always kind of think to myself, well, you know. In, in about two years, when you're coming back to this code, you're, you're gonna be very happy with yourself. Um, if you don't write unit tests in a couple of years, you're gonna come back to yourself and be thoroughly upset. Um, Cause at some point, you know, you're gonna refactor that code, you're gonna make some change. And uh, you know, without tests, you're, you're not really refactoring, you're just changing stuff. Like you have no idea what is actually <laughs> happening with that code and, and you know, What what those changes actually mean, you know, and that feedback loop, you know, you're talking about um, integration testing, you know, that feedback loop for integration testing is is oftentimes a lot a lot longer than just a, you know, kind of a hopefully quick unit test.
0: Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. This is a great topic, but let's keep moving. So, uh, Pete, uh, what would you like to talk about that's in the news?
2: Yeah. So something I read, um, I'm not sure when they announced it, um, but I, I read it this week is, um, some news, uh, from GitHub, uh, you know, the open source code sharing site. Uh, they're now allowing, um, developers to keep, uh, and own essentially the intellectual property that they create when they use company resources. Um, which I thought was, was, was pretty awesome to hear. Um, you know, and definitely I would say kind of in line with, you know, kind of GitHub's, you know, more progressive model in as a as a you know kind of open source business, um, but uh, you know what's most interesting is how um, you know for people who have watched uh, you know Silicon Valley, I think it was this last season was the one that that basically talked about you know who owned the intellectual property of Pi Piper. When he rewrote yeah. wrote it using a company laptop,
0: yeah, I was gonna bring that up when when I uh, when I found out you were gonna bring up this topic, so I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> it was I know a mean, great episode
2: yeah, and it, exactly it was a great episode It's one of those things where you know uh, oftentimes people don't really think about it like you know, we hack on stuff at night, you know, and we're using a company laptop and, you know, you may not think about it. Um, you know, companies are different. I mean, there are, yeah. you know, large enterprise companies that will absolutely, you know, go after you to the ends of the earth. And actually, in this um, news article, they actually talked about, you know, the, this uh, Alcatel versus Evan Brown case. Uh, which I'd actually never heard of before. Um, But, uh, you know, what happened in this case, it it was in the mid-1990s, this programmer, Evan Brown, worked for Alcatel, and he spent, you know, 20 years trying to create this algorithm that would allow old software to work with new hardware. Um, And he just, it like came to him and it said like, you know, this article in like 1997, this idea just came to him, uh, which, which I think we can all kind of relate to where that like you're churning down this idea forever and something just kind of clicks. Um, what's interesting is he actually brought this solution to the company, um, uh, and, and tried to like share the profits, the, the company might create. So like he kind of thought of this idea while not working for them. It's a really interesting case. Um, and, what ended up happening is that the company, Alcatel, ended up firing him and then sued him over ownership for the idea. So at this point, we're just talking about like an idea. There was actually no code created. Um, what's most amazing is is the end part of this. So apparently there was a seven-year-long battle. Uh, Brown lost the case, and he was forced to spend three months writing code to implement the solution, which just oh. is... Mind-boggling to
0: even yeah, you, think you about. You want to talk right? about some quality software? <laughs>
2: Jeez,
0: <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I bet there was not any unit tests <laughs> with this code.
1: Yeah. How is that like not indentured servitude? Like, um,
2: you know? yeah. <sighs> just, just incredible. Um, you know what is definitely interesting, also, and they definitely mentioned in the article is that you know they. Um, so apparently GitHub is um, uh, is is open sourcing the the idea. It's called the balanced employee IP agreement. Uh, short code uh, BIPA, which is terrible yeah,
1: <laughs> name terrible. for that.
2: Um, but the, the interesting part is is that you know they're saying like if you use a company laptop, um, but it's on company time, then it's okay. Um, like not on company time, but like free time. So like that's where I guess the tricky part comes in. Like if you're and like I guess the other part is like it can't conflict with the business of GitHub. Yeah. Um, which you know is is pretty. I guess, well-defined, you know, in many cases, uh, I think if you worked for like some fortune 500, their business is probably so broad, you'd have a lot harder time kind of, you know, figuring out, yeah. am I actually competing with the business or not? It's like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, exactly. There, there are companies that are very large. Uh, I bet Brian can relate to this, that, uh, they're into <laughs> everything. So the idea of, of, you know, uh, is this IP that I'm working on, uh, not something that touches another part, another segment of the company uh, can be very uh, harrowing for uh, uh, an employee. but I especially, think for...
0: especially those companies that are solely based around IP.
1: Yes <laughs> exactly. Um, without
2: any real assets whatsoever, correct?
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, there there are definitely some of that. There are some who are very protective of their IP um you know the those that shall not be named and um they uh you know so so to be in a, in that situation versus what github is proposing is i think i think is really great cuz I, I like yes it's well defined um i think in kind of a, many people's minds what space github is in and where that extends uh the idea of keeping um you know uh, being able to use your company laptop which i think if you're in a good company you feel a lot of ownership over your work laptop that it's like it's like your computer even though it's not legally in any way it's my um, stickers, right exactly it's my stickers that are on it it's my desktop <laughs> picture you know um you know I, I for some companies you know you may have admin rights and you're installing your own software in it so you really do feel a lot of ownership so to then be able to actually use that laptop to um, work on your own personal ip um, is really great and i think also the fact that GitHub's saying that that, that time, that your, your, your free time may be in the office um, and that, that that's okay. Like the idea that you're actually sitting in an office working for the company on their hardware, you know, on the, the resources they own, um, but it's still your IP uh, because you're doing it, quote unquote, on your free time uh, is, I think, awesome, really great. Yeah, I mean, really I think the
2: other thing, the other thing too that I think is pretty interesting about, uh, you know, GitHub kind of traditionally was, you know, um, most people were working remote. I'm, I'm sure they still have a good amount of remote engineers, um, you know, so that probably helps a lot in this, in that, like, you know, what is in the office, right, if you're working remote. Um, but the other thing is too, is, is I hope it kind of, kind of acknowledges the fact that, like, you know, for a lot of people, I mean, I'm in technical operations, so I feel like, you know, if I, pop out of work in the middle of the day for a couple of hours to run an errand, it's not really a big deal because like I'm probably going to be working at nine o'clock at night, like catching up and doing flex time and things like that, you know, yeah, having that flexibility. Exactly. Right. So, you know, what really is company time, <clears throat> you know, if it's, if I'm going to spend some more time while at home, you know, so um, I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: I agree. I really do. Um, Cause I think for somebody who has a lot of ideas and, Things I'd love to like experiment and play on. Um, it's just nice knowing that, like, hey, if I want to play with this for five minutes, you know, bang something out for five, 10, 20 minutes on my lunch break, it's something that I can do without feeling like, hey, um, you know, I can't work on this until, you know, tonight when I get home.
0: Um, so, yeah, get the idea out of your head, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you can, so you can start focusing on something else. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, because ideas just stay present.
1: Exactly, because sometimes it's as simple as, uh, you know, you you want to just say email yourself that idea so you don't forget, and you start worrying about like, hey, you know, I'm emailing this idea f- from my work computer, uh, you know, I'm, there's a very slippery slope, or probably legally it's not a very slippery slope, It's it's very clearly defined that, hey, that then now counts, and all of a sudden you've exposed your you know, your personal IP, uh, to your company and and the company you're working for, if they don't have a a deal like this. So
2: yeah, definitely a good lesson. Yeah. Good lesson for anyone listening whose company, well, isn't GitHub, uh, and doesn't have this, this flexible policy is, uh, before you start writing a line of code for that million dollar idea, Uh, You know, make sure you're on your own personal laptop you bought with your own money uh, and not, uh, you know, not in the office is probably the best places to start.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I think you should definitely have those two things checked off uh, if you're not working at GitHub. All right. Uh, I think that's a good place to move on to our next story. So I, I wanted to talk about something that came out of Google Cloud Next, uh, which was Google's um, big uh, cloud conference uh, earlier this month. Uh, they, it was from March uh, 8th through 10th in uh, San Francisco. And one of the things that they they announced a lot of things, but one of the things they announced that uh, I thought was really interesting is uh, cl- uh, Google Cloud Spanner, which is... Uh, as they're claiming a relational database as a service um, that is highly available and um, uh, high performance, uh, using acid transactions and SQL queries, it's like everything that you would want with five nines of service. Um, the thing that I think was really remarkable about it is that uh, it, in, in practice, is actually violating a theorem uh this this cap theorem that uh for our listeners who aren't familiar with it um the cap theorem was was uh proposed by eric brewer and uh some really interesting good uh write-ups about this but uh, and that you should look and we'll also have um in the the show notes but the idea is that for any distributed system you basically have to pick two of three things, and you can ha- you can only have two. You can either have it be consistent, uh, you know, the data consistent across the distributed nodes. You can either have it, uh, or you can have it so that it's highly available, or you can have it that, that it's um, fault uh, tolerant to partitions, you know, uh, network partitions, meaning uh, drops in uh, networking between uh, between the nodes. Uh, and so you can only pick two of those three things, and um, there's a whole lot of write-ups out there about which types of storage technologies fall into kind of which side of the triangle of these, whether it's CA or AP or CP. And um, uh, the interesting thing about this cloud spanner stuff is that uh, Eric Brewer, the guy who proposed the theorem, is actually on the team uh, that delivered um, uh, this this new product spanner uh, and has a really interesting white paper about how it this does not violate um the cap uh, theorem that it actually it bends it uh and it's very interesting kind of how it it gets around uh this but you know they're basically saying that uh it's 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 highly available it's consistent so that you have these asset tra- transactions and um that uh, you get five nines of uh, availability so you're not you're you're uh you're fault tolerant to to network partitioning, so um, uh, it sounds really promising. I have not even had the chance yet to try it, um, but if you you know we'll have the in the link in the show notes. But uh, I, I highly encourage people to check this out if you're interested in kind of relational database as a service uh, from Google.
0: I hadn't I hadn't seen this yet either. I'm gonna have to uh, look into this a little more in depth because because that's the holy grail apparently, right? I mean, <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a really great. I mean, storage service, or you know, they're they're just straight up calling it a relational database service. But um, you know, when you've got things like uh, Dynamo DB from Amazon, and um, or roll your own with things like Cassandra, um, these uh, you know, or um, uh, Bigtable, you know, with uh, HBase, uh, with uh, another kind of technology that came out of Google. If you can accomplish all of this and have a relational database. Um, you know the, a lot of the trade-off has been moving away from relational databases either by having it be a document store that's not relational or um, key value pairs like Cassandra. Um, or if you've got a relational database, you um, you're going to give up the, uh, you know, the availability side of this. Um, you know, the idea that uh, there are there will be moments when if you try to distribute this across data centers, there will be a partition in between those data centers and you won't have full read-write access, uh, you know, for that five nines of availability.
0: Yes, this is great. I mean, you know, for, for any, anything you need to scale horizontally and not worry about, you, you know, the partitions, this is simplifies a lot of things or or potentially would simplify simplify a lot of things
1: yeah
2: yeah i Pete, think uh, uh yeah i was good looking through this just because uh like i i heard it was announced but you know a lot of stuff you know a lot of stuff comes out of google it's always hard to track kind of what's going yeah, exactly. on exactly uh, um you know one of the things i think that's actually most interesting about this is that um i mean it's been said before definitely not by me that you know we live off the scraps of google like pretty much all of us in the open source world, like we're just living off of Google scraps, yeah. um, you know. And I think of things like, you know, they're referencing, you know, Chubby, like which is essentially what Zookeeper kind of was the open source version of that. Um, and I and I'm even thinking to like, um, you know, if you rewind back to what it would have been 2006, um, basically the um, uh, the S3 paper, what what turned into S3. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on on you know what that. The Dynamo paper, basically. Yep. You know, and out of Dynamo, we got React and we got things like Cassandra and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, you know, so I'm always interested to see stuff like this because, you know, obviously, you know, hopefully I would say we'll get some more information out of this. You know, my only fear is that, like, you know, they they kind of keep it for inside, you know, for Google Cloud. Uh, yep. and, and, and don't give more details, but knowing how, uh, <laughs> how engineers have been, at least with databases is, you know, once they start getting, you know, new ideas on how to do things, you know, a lot of times they'll be off to the races, um, in order to try to try to replicate it. I mean, like I said, we've, we've seen this with a ton of open source projects that have, you know, come about because of, of papers, you know, published papers about different ideas on how to, you know, get consistency and availability and partition tolerance
1: Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes to the white paper that Eric, uh, uh, Dr. Brewer, uh, wrote. But he's got this interesting section about true time and and synchronizing clocks in a distributed uh, fashion. And that was kind of the key to being able to accomplish uh, what Spanner uh, is doing. So um, they're already, even with this announcement, already being pretty transparent kind of about what the discoveries are to... um, to move this forward so we may in the next you know few years you know year two three uh see this you know see an an open source um implementation of this from people who are excited about the ideas that are coming out of uh the work that the spanner team is doing
2: i'm just really glad that uh um, google adwords is a is a cash cow and and they can spend you know those those hard earned ad dollars on uh on on this type of investment because yeah. I mean you know think about how much further you know computing has come because of companies uh, like Google and you know others.
1: Yeah, exactly. As much as you know, people demonize you know the ad driven world we're in. It's it's paying dividends on some of this stuff, which uh, in Google, uh, what G- Google's doing in particular. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. All right, so let's dive into the interview that uh, we have Pete here to do. So, uh, but before we dive into our interview segment, I'd like uh, this is something I like to ask all of our guests. Uh, since DevOps is a broad topic, and to different people it has very different definitions. Um, but uh, Pete, how do you def- how do you personally define DevOps?
2: Um, yeah, so I guess I would probably consider myself to be more of a, a DevOps purist in that um, uh, I I really think about DevOps as you know that kind of cultural shift that is required to get uh, developer teams and operations teams and and hopefully the whole rest of the business you know working together hopefully delivering software in a in a more efficient way than than we really have in the past. Um, that's probably my, you know, that's probably more like the the OG version of DevOps. Um, yeah, I definitely don't. Uh, I, you know, I'm not considering DevOps as a job title, even though I've held Director of DevOps as a title before. Um, yep. Or you know, or the DevOps team. You know, people people throw that around even in my company, uh, knowing how much I dislike it, and they mm-hmm. they get a side eye from me when, whenever whenever I hear it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Nice. Yeah. No. And and. Uh, I totally agree with a lot of you know what you said here. Is the you know, the idea that uh, it isn't a title, right? It is something that's a a culture uh, within a company, and kind of everybody is DevOps, uh, and you either kind of are a part of it or you're not as a company practicing it. So, um, so uh, Pete, you know we we've kind of we're. 27 minutes into the uh, into the show now, um, tell us a little bit about you, what you're doing now, uh, you know where you're at, so that our listeners kind of get a, an overview of of who you are.
2: Yeah, awesome. Well, physically, I am. Uh, I'm in the Boston area, um, and I've been here since about 2004, just working for you know various tech companies and kind of bouncing my way from um, you know either tech startup to large company and back and forth again. Um, You know, most recently, I work for a company called ThreatStack. I started here about uh, 2014, so almost three years ago. Um, And um, what we do at ThreatStack is uh, we have a continuous cloud security monitoring product. And and what that really means is, you know, trying to build a product that can help, you know, traditional, like, I guess, companies who are not traditionally security-focused companies make sense of security. Um, and so we do that with, um, you know, agents that can run on your servers and capture events. And, you know, we, we do a lot of integrations with Amazon cause they're, they're really, uh, you know, obviously, obviously a lot of people use Amazon web services. So we try to do a lot of integrations and helping people kind of secure their systems in an easier way. So, so right now I manage the, uh, the technical operations team for essentially that platform for ThreatStack. Very cool.
1: Very cool. And, um, you know, tell us a little bit about like kind of where you came from too. Um, you know where, what's your history?
2: Yeah, so i've I've been all over the place. My background is is, I don't know, probably normal yeah. for for people who've been doing tech for as long as me. I actually started in tech. Um, I, I, I like to joke. I started in tech at the turn of the century, um, which was <laughs> during the the last tech bubble that we were in. Um, and so I was, uh, I started working for an internet service provider, which, which, uh, for, for people who've been doing this for a long time, that was, that was kind of our SaaS. you know, we didn't really have SaaS companies or, or web companies. It was, uh, ISPs, yeah. um, and ISPs usually did a lot of hosting, like web hosting and web development and just network stuff. Um, unfortunately I didn't get to do any of that in that job. Uh, my job, uh, it was a wireless ISP. My job was to climb the roofs. Of, of houses and and commercial buildings to install wireless internet. Um, it was in Michigan, and I did it in the winter time. So um,
1: it was uh, wow.
2: <laughs> not. Uh, it was not that fun of a job. Uh, and you
0: still have all your fingers and toes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not a fan. Well, it's interesting. I I don't mind heights. Um, I, I like top of a tall building. Uh, look down. All good. Roller coasters. Looking down. All good. But. Um, you know, 20 feet off the ground, like on a ladder, like not good. <laughs> it's like, if yeah. I, if I fall from like the top of a building like, it's, I'm not going to feel anything. It's just going to be over. But if you fall from 20 feet, it's just going to hurt. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, But uh, yeah, so anyway, so I did that for a little while. And luckily, it was um, they They didn't get decimated too terribly by the when the tech bubble burst, um, because they were doing more kind of residential and commercial internet service. Um, and even so, though, you know, a lot of a lot of companies really went under, um, people still needed access to the internet. And so that that was growing. So um, I did that for a few years, and it was really, really a lot of fun. And I learned a lot about just Linux and networking and, and kind of the basics of things. Um, I moved out to Boston in 2004 and, you know, kind of worked my way from, you know, kind of failed startup to failed startup, just, you know, doing some tech stuff. Um, my, my one shortest stint was a German company I worked at for six weeks um, they were, they're actually still in business there, but, but they're only in Germany. They, they tried to come out to the U S and it just didn't work out too well. But, um, uh, I worked there for about six weeks. I actually flew out to Germany. I met all the engineers, like wonderful people started getting things going and get the ground running. And then like, like I said, five, six weeks later after I started, they, they were just like, yeah, actually that whole kind of, you know, come to the U S didn't really work out too well. So we're gonna, we're gonna stay in Germany and, and just keep growing out here. Um, and you know, they, there was, like, three of us at the time, and they just let us all go. So I was like, all right, like, that didn't work out.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
2: um, but, uh, but, yeah, in, uh, in 2009 is when I got involved in cloud. I got um, uh, some friends of mine that I had actually worked with in 2004 – um you know some some people at that startup uh they you know I kept in touch with them just kind of friendly like um and they reached out to me in 2009 they were doing a startup a company called Sonian and um who's actually still in business they're doing email archiving and their big thing was we were doing email archiving but it was like in the cloud um when 2009 was still pretty early for that stuff and um it was really neat because we got to be in some ways trailblazers on a lot of um a lot of technologies that are in heavy use today. Um, I mean, we were really early on Amazon Web Services for better or worse. If, if for anyone who's deployed to Amazon in the you know, 2009, 2008, 2010 range, you know it was yeah. it was pretty rough. Um, you know, but it was a ton of fun because we had some really incredible engineers. Um, we were probably the earliest Elasticsearch user, um, where you know probably the four of the five top contributors to Elasticsearch. Who all actually work for Elasticsearch now? Um, they actually worked with us at Sonyan because we were such a you know early user of it that we we saw the value in it and kind of invested in that. Um, and um, and yeah, while we were there, um, you know, we had an opportunity to get angry at Nagios and um, Sean Porter, who's you know one of the creators of Sensu. You know, that's where he came up with that idea for Sensu. Uh, was what was working on my team at Sonyan. I got so so pissed off at Nagios in how terrible it was to configure for our specific, you know, kind of dynamic environment that yeah. I just said, like, we got to fix this, you know, it's, it's completely worthless to us. It was pretty much like having no monitoring at all. And, you know, he had this idea and, you know, he's, he's, you know, smart and hungry and really wanted to try something. So I just said, you know, take a week and just proof of concept it. And he came back with this idea that was, you know, turned into Sensu. Um, and then I, I went to my CEO and said, Hey, you know, we're going to open source this thing. Um, you know, knowing that it was, you know, the only way people were going to use it was if we open sourced it. And, wow, you know, very cool. Yeah.
1: And for our listeners, just describe what, where Sensu fits in the ecosystem.
2: Yeah, definitely. So Sensu is basically a, um, you know, I'm not sure what their official taglines are now, but, you know, I always have thought of it as a, you know, it's a monitoring system, but it's more, it's more than that. It's kind of a monitoring router. Um, it's, it's a way that you can, you can publish checks to hosts and then when those checks come back, you can basically take action on them. So, um, many people use it for host-based monitoring, like is my website up and is my server up? Um, but, um, you know, you can also use it for like metrics, metrics collection. You can, you can run these checks, which then output metrics and then actually send them over to your, you know, telemetry pipeline or things like that. Um, you know, it's a it's pretty cool. It's pretty flexible. You can check it out. Um, uh, it's on GitHub, and they've got a website now. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was pretty neat to see a lot of the stuff from kind of the early days, as as a lot of these companies kind of you know came about, um, you know, during that that early kind of cloud era.
0: So, it was uh, did it take any convincing for your? to talk your CEO into being okay with it?
2: Um, yeah. So it was. he was a, um, you know, he, he's, he's a CEO. He's a business guy. And, um, you know, he's looking for things that can, you know, make money. Um, and so open source doesn't make money. Um, and, and giving away free software doesn't make money. Um, and so, you know, the, the way we basically got to it. So once the timeline was something like, we we had a proof of concept and then sean kind of went heads down for a month and built kind of the first version like zero zero one um and um and i basically was like hey like you know we obviously didn't want to have this boondoggle of build a monitoring system um you know we had a lot of other stuff to do so i just said you know we we just got to get it deployed to prod you know by like i think september or something like that and then let's try to open source it in in november and so one of the things that we 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 did, uh, which we had to obviously get our CEO to to agree to, was um, we needed contributors. So we actually reached out to people in the community who um, to start using it before we actually open sourced it. So we like gave gave access to some some external contributors who are still part of the project today um, to you know to use it and um, and and to help us you know kind of improve upon it. Um, but the biggest way, the thing that really kind of clicked it for the CEO is you know, we, we tried to use it, um, as kind of a recruiting tool. Um, you know, we tried, you know, So at this point, it would have been 2011. I want to say, um, you know, Sonian was, you know, kind of somewhat known because of, you know, some of the engineers we had working there, but, you know, we did email archiving. It wasn't kind of a, it wasn't a very interesting kind of business that we were in. And so how do you convince, you know, strong engineers to come and work, you know, at your company, you're up against, you know, bigger companies that are more kind of quote interesting. Um, and so th- that was my kind of selling point to the CEO As I said, listen, you know, if we can show that we're working on these really interesting projects and that if you come work here, you also get to work on these interesting projects. You know, we can hopefully entice people to come, you know, come and join us on that, on that journey.
0: That's, that's great. I love stories like that. I mean, it's the classic, uh, where everyone has seen a Netflix, uh, presentation by now and they're always like, and we're hiring, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's totally uh, a big selling point because you know people want to go work where um, at least at least my my opinion anyway where, where your code just doesn't rot you know uh, on on somebody's server or you know you, you get out of a job four years later and you you can show nothing publicly for it so yeah and I mean
2: not that I mean Sonyan was a growing business but you just never know where it's going to go and it, we could have. I mean, we could have, um, we could have open sourced it, but we could have GPL3'd it, um, which would have meant the death of it for anyone else using it. Like, no one would have integrated into their systems. Like, that's a, that's a big risk, uh, if you're, if you're a small company on, on using GPL3 code. Um, and what we ended up doing, we ended up just doing an MIT license and just kind of give, just get, get it out there. Um, and, you know, mainly just because, um, even though we had the discussion of like, you know, could we build a product around this? You know, the end result is like, we're not a monitoring company. We're an email archiving company. Um, let's, you know, but we need monitoring and, you know, this thing solves a very specific need we have. So, you know, let's kind of get it out there. So
1: that's awesome. I love this story. Uh, this is so cool. Um, Cause I, I think using uh, open source as a recruiting tool is some of the most successful, um, recruiting that I've seen uh, for companies uh, you know it's it's something that uh, I've been a part of in the past uh, I've worked at a lot of big companies where it's been there's been a lot of inertia kind of teaching people why this is something that's important um, so uh, that's this is awesome to hear kind of on the uh, uh, on the scale of, of what you guys delivered
2: yeah I mean if you're you know for anyone listening if you're, if you're trying to convince your company to do it that's that's the angle to go in I mean your company knows exactly how much it costs to hire a new engineer. If they're using a recruiter, um, you know it's costing tens of thousands of dollars to hire a person. Um, you know, and if you can find ways to entice you know smart people to come work with you because of your open source contributions or projects, um, then you know you're saving tens of thousands of dollars. Like it's not that the open source core code has no value. It actually has immense value in just ingest those cost savings, let alone Mm. like the ability to actually find good people, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you get, you get somebody, you already know their coding styles and, uh, and everything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I was at Sony and for almost four years, you know, and it was just a lot of fun and, um, you know, was looking for a new challenge and I ended up at, um, Dine, uh, which is a, a company for those that may not know, been in the news a little bit more recently, but uh, they're one of those companies that everyone kind of uses and, and not a lot of people maybe know that they use. Um, so Dyne is a DNS provider, you know, global uh, kind of traffic, whatever, I'm not sure what their new, you know, marketing stuff is for them now. Um, but, um, yeah, that was a company up in Manchester, and actually, Brian, that's that's where I think we met at at one of the yep. one of the parties up there, right?
0: Yep, Dine they, used to always throw parties. They, I don't know if they still do. I have I haven't <laughs> been down there in a while.
2: Yeah, the so now Dine, I think they just got acquired by Oracle a few months ago, or maybe a month ago. I can't remember when when that all went down. But you know, I went over there. Um, I got um, connected with the the CTO um, in 2013, 2012. Man, the dates just. It's hard to remember, but um, a few years ago, and, um, you know, and they were, you know, they basically, like, they just had, uh, it was maybe four months after they got uh, an A round of funding. You know, they were bootstrapped for a very long time, you know, profitable bootstrap type company, which is kind of unheard of, I feel like, in a lot of tech. And, you know, they got this investment, and they were like, we want to take over the world. We want to go big, and they were on this huge hiring push. And I think when I started, they were still a good-sized company. When I started, they were about 150 when I started, 160, um, and I was there for about a year and a half. You know, we, um, you know, we worked through some pretty some big, hard projects. Um, you know, the biggest challenge for me with with dine was that it was in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I live about an hour away from there, um, mm. and so driving 120 miles a day. Uh, for about a year and a half, was was probably about as much as I could take. <laughs> I did listen to a lot of podcasts during that time, though.
0: <laughs> yep, yeah, I least, can relate. You were, you were driving the other way from the Boston traffic, right? So, yeah, so, it maybe actually maybe that helps. It wasn't
2: that bad. I can't. I really can't complain. When I started at ThreatStack, um, you know, I said to myself, uh, you yeah, know, this is gonna be so great. Um, I actually live very close to the commuter rail station in Boston, so I can just walk to the commuter rail, and it dumps you right downtown, which is which is really awesome. When I started at Threatstack, our office was over, um, in, uh, Cambridge, uh, an area called Kendall Square. And that's where, you know, like Microsoft and Google and a lot of big biotech companies kind of exist over there. And so, um, I remember like my first day, I'm thinking to myself, oh, like, you know, this should be great. Like my commute will be so, will be so short. It still took me an hour to get there because it was like 10 minute walk, 20 minute train, walk for five more minutes, then wait for another train, then walk for 10 more minutes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, commuting. Commuting's great. <laughs> uh, I say that because I can relate. I'm, I'm doing about 50 miles now uh, in the Bay Area uh, from San Jose to, to San Francisco. And uh, yeah, uh, you can imagine if I hit the wrong time of day, it can take three hours.
2: Yeah, I was going to so, say, uh, I don't even know what the right time of day would, would be to, to make that commute. Like
1: 5.30 a.m. That's about it. That is. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man! So uh, tell me a little bit more about your day to day now, uh, and and what you're doing, uh, you know, at uh, Threat Stack.
2: Yeah. So um, we're stacking threats on one side of the, the office, just, it's just as high as they can go. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we actually have an internal meme that has been going for a long time uh, called uh, "Treat Snacks," because if you if you type Threat Stack a lot, you'll mistype it as as treat snack at least once. Uh, at least once. And so, um, you know, we, we use it in just in comical places uh, that treat snack, um, you know, just it will it will live on forever. But, um, yeah, so my day to day, I mean, it's it's operations. So as, as I'm sure a lot of people know, it, it varies wildly. So, you know, we've got a team uh, in, in ops and tech ops right now of um, three of us. Um, so we're a pretty small team still. Um, we actually launched officially um, in. 2014 in December. So it's been a couple of years since we've launched. And, um, you know, again, due to the beauty of the cloud, you know, you can do so much more with so many less people. So, mm. um, so we've been able to scale pretty dramatically. I mean, we, we hired, we're basically up to three people. And it's been a few years after launch. So we, we ran it pretty much with like somewhere between two and three people kind of depending on, you know, depending on the time of the year um, for, for quite a while. And, um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, a lot of our days, um, you know, especially at our kind of size and scale, um, is, you know, we're, we're trying to improve, you know, kind of the big three for us, you know, scalability, um, availability, and profitability. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those are kind of the three things that we talk about constantly, um, you know, and, and things that we can do that impact one of those three buckets is, is kind of the, the, the biggest focus points for us. Um, you know, we, you know, we talk about DevOps, you kind of mentioned in the morning and, um, you know, I, not to say like, I think we do DevOps really well, but, um, you know, I do think the way in which we are kind of the way in which the operations team is structured in that, you know, w- what we try to do in operations is to build, you know, the platform and the tools that the developers can consume. Um, and this is definitely not of any of my idea. This is stuff that has been talked about kind of at length um, for many years in how, you know, you, you should build these, these consumable, consumable services, you know, for your customers, your customers being your dev people to to do things with. Um, and so, you know, I try to take that to heart, um, selfishly because if, if I can teach them, for example, how to deploy their app and write a chef cookbook or something, um, you know, it's, it's one less thing I have to do. Um, but also, you know, as you'd totally expect the developers, you know, who write, you know, this automation, you know, they're, they're much more connected, I guess, to to how that application actually, you know, gets deployed and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, at this kind of stage, you know, we, we actually spent a lot of time, you know, really just working with our developers and and helping them out, kind of helping them level up. Um, you know, one of the greatest things that happened recently was, you know, we had, um, you know, some new, um, some new service that we're we're, uh, we're doing some updates on and, and, you know, as we scale and then we grow, you know, we find kind of performance issues we're trying to improve upon. Um, and, you know, we're trying to roll in some new services and, and I'm talking to the developers and they, and they want to bring in like a new database and, and some other things. And I'm just like, all right, well, you know, here's what you need to test. Here's what you got to think about. Um, and what was amazing is watching them, you know, go and build, you know, using tools that we gave them, go and build like test systems that they could then break, and they'd run some code against it, and then they'd kill one of the hosts while their code mm. was running and, and do, like, real disaster recovery stuff um, and, um, you know, kind of understand, like, what it meant to really, you know, um, you kind of build the application, not just kind of, like, commit code and YOLO it to production, but, like, actually how their code interacts with all the pieces of the platform.
1: Yeah, that, that's the best part of, like, I, I think a lot of... Um kind of operations folks who've been in the game for a long time and haven't had the experience of working with AWS or, or really in any of the um, the public cloud uh, infrastructure. Um, they And they may have experience, experience with like a hypervisor, um, but they still kind of want to control it and say, okay, please submit a form and we'll get you a, you know, a a new VM in, you know, the next two weeks. They don't realize the power of allowing uh, developers or the, uh, the QA team or the testing infrastructure to provision on demand so that you can do these types of things or to kill um, uh, services on demand to do disaster recovery testing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the most, I guess, uh, hilarious things is, you know, my, my name around the office is Captain Cogs. So Cogs like uh, cost of goods sold. Um, because for huh. a SaaS company, the you know our Amazon bill, uh, you know, is the cost of goods sold. Um, yeah. And so the the lower I can get that bill, the the better our metrics look. You know, we're delivering service for for cheaper. Um, and uh, a little while ago, you know, we were running a lot of services on you know on these you know kind of CPU heavy hosts. And I started doing the math, and I'm like, you know, we're not we're not really hitting the CPU that heavy. And I rolled about like a, a fifth of our infrastructure over to T2 hosts. Um, and for those that don't know, those are these like burstable, you know, credit generating um, instances inside Amazon. Um, and they're, they're kind of the same, except they're a lot cheaper if, if you're not running your CPU at like 100% all the time. And, um, and so, you know, now I'm known as Captain Cogs or Colonel Cogs, depending on on who's, uh, on who's you know, making the joke. But uh, I might get, you know, an upgrade in my in my title, (laughs) Um, you know, but it's always interesting because, you know, when we make changes like that and we and we treat kind of cost as a first class citizen, um, you know, when we are doing load testing in dev, um, we're not just load testing for like the, um, you know, is the application going to fall over? And when it does fall over, like, how does it fall over? Um, which is always nice to know but we're also like doing these load tests to figure out like what's the instance size that we're going to run here um, if only to understand like well we need very fast disks or we need a lot of cpus or a mixture of everything you know Um, and these are like the tests that that we're not actually doing in operations ourselves specifically but we're kind of like you know hand in hand with the developers as they're building out these apps and kind of showing them like well hey here's how you can spin up these these hosts you know, inside of an auto scaling group, and, and run your test against them, or something like that.
1: Awesome. Hey, uh, Brian, do you have any last questions?
0: I do, but um, we for are it. running long. <laughs> I know we're
1: running long, but let's do one more question. All
0: right. So, so I I wanted to uh, to continue with the the. Um, DevOps thread. So I know, Pete, you've written uh, or talked a lot about, like, DevOps uh, sec or DevOps security or whatever. Um, So do you like that term better than, like, rugged DevOps? Or do you have opinions of of these terms? Or or, or do you just in general not like how these terms get coined?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I, I, I say this joke, having done a couple of webinars for O'Reilly that are DevOps sec related or Dev sec op related. Um, you know, honestly, like I've, um, it is what it is. I think if anything, they're really good qualifiers um, that we can use to just describe a way of doing work. Um, but one thing I definitely believe is that, and I've spoken about this before, um, you know, in conference talks you know, a lot last year, is that you know we are really in this place where Security teams have been kind of left behind in this DevOps revolution. You know, devs and ops teams are using all these great new tools and security time, uh, teams are, are just kind of left behind. And that's mm-hmm. that's even if you have a security team because you might be, I mean, I've worked at companies that had a couple hundred people and didn't have a security team yet, um, like a dedicated team. So, you know, what happens when a security team does get implemented and you're a couple hundred person company? Um, you know, and many times they're like, "Well, we've got this SOC two compliance we're doing, so we're just gonna say no to everything." Instead of like, "Hey, like, here's the tools that we're using, security team. Or here's the tools we're using over in, in ops. Um, you know, how can you use these tools to like, you know, implement security improvements, you know, and things like that." Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it even expands the, the thing that I haven't really seen is the I've seen. Uh, you know, Dev QA Ops or Dev Test Ops is one, and then we should also have Dev Sec Ops. Um, but like, where does that end? Like, I think it, I th- and I don't mean it in a negative way. I mean it like there are every team that is in a company, every silo that you want to put uh, you know tech people into um, should be all wrapped up into what is this overarching umbrella of DevOps. Um, Absolutely. You know, I, think it, I think it needs another name and another buzzword of like, you know, unified company ops or something <laughs> like that. But uh, that's terrible. Don't use that. Um, but, you know, some, something else that's like, it's not just about developers and operations. It's about everybody.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's always been, you know, if you go back to the beginning of this talk, that that's kind of my description of DevOps. It's, it's really, you know, we talk about dev and ops, that's probably the first two places where, you know, you, you need to get together on because that's probably where your your flow is breaking down. But, you know, what about your product managers and and your salespeople? Yeah. I mean, have you ever been on a demo for your product with one of your salespeople? Because hmm. I bet you'd be horrified in what they would say. And, and at least once in a demo, you might sit there and go, wait, we don't do that at all. Or like, we don't support that. You know, you'll be yeah. thinking that in your head sometimes because of just sometimes what happens when that disconnect gets
0: so huge.
1: Yeah. So true
0: absolutely, and remember you heard it here first, Brian Jackson coined the term u <laughs> ops right u ops <laughs> okay, all right, let's do it u ops all
1: right, trademark it's good uh, it's, it fits
2: two worlds, it's like you ops and yeah, like exactly universal right? ops, yeah, I, I see oh, I can f- get the domain right now.
1: I- I'm doing it right now. Oh boy. Oh man. Well, that's uh, as much as I don't want this to end because this has been such a great conversation. I think this would be a, a perfect time to uh, call it quits. But uh, thanks, Pete, for joining us today. Uh, Pete, where where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're working on?
2: Um, so I'm on I'm on the Twitter just Pete Cheslock on Twitter, and um, I, I don't post as frequently as I used to. Um, but you know, I I I I, I drop some hot takes there once in a while. Um, I used to blog and there's still some, maybe some good stuff on uh, on my, my blog, it's pete.wtf. Um, Got to use those those new fancy domain names for, uh, awesome. for, stu- for something. Awesome. I love that top
1: level domain. <laughs>
2: Got to use it for something. Um, you know, but otherwise, um, you know, I, I'm at ThreatStack, I, uh, I I make my way to a few conferences, and and I'll be at um, I'll be at Monitorama if if anyone's going to be there. And um, uh, amazingly, my talk was accepted at Velocity out in San Fran. So no kidding. Um, if 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 you guys are going to be there, or if anyone listening is going to be there, um, you know, would love to meet up and chat. And
1: oh, congrats! And, um, I'm That's super awesome. Excited. That, that's a great conference,
2: um, but uh, but yeah. Otherwise, you know, uh, this is my obligatory like, hey, we're hiring. But I actually am hiring at ThreatStack. Uh We're we're looking to add someone to the to the technical operations team. So you know, if you're if you're in the Boston area or, or uh, don't mind relocating, uh, unfortunately, we don't do remotes. But um, if you're in the area, um, you know, check us out on the ThreatStack.com site. Um, we've got a careers page there, and and uh, shoot me over your info. I'd love to love to chat with you.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, great. Thanks, Pete. Um, I can be found on Twitter as well at Brian Demers, all one word.
1: Oh, great. And uh, I can be found on Twitter as well. Uh, I'm at Jackson, J-A-X-Z-I-N. But before we go, let's leave our listeners with something to do. So this is where each week we'll leave you, the listener, with something to watch, read, play, or try out some other way. Brian, what did you want to leave our listeners with?
0: All right. So the past couple of days, I've been playing around with uh, Same Room or some Same Room.io. Uh, it's basically uh, a, s- a service that will tunnel different chat protocols together. Hmm. So uh, I was trying to use it with uh, with Slack and HipChat. Yeah. Um, I myself am in too many different chat rooms, so yeah. I'm still pretending I'm I'm still in IRC, um, <laughs> but I don't think I've posted anything in IRC for a while. But but anyway, so I mean. You know, a dozen different HipChat rooms, um, four different or five different Slack um, teams and then, you know, various, various channels within those teams. So I'm really looking for a way to channel everything through. So I I was able to get it set up and it looks really cool. Uh, It definitely works better with Slack than it does with HipChat, Um, but it's definitely something I want to check out and play with a little more.
1: Very, oh, yeah. very cool. Uh, that that actually sounds really cool. I I've got the same problem of you know Google Hangouts and Slack and HipChat and you know you name it. Uh, so I am going to definitely check that out. Uh, Pete, wh- what did you bring our listeners?
2: So I didn't know if I was going to go more on the tech side or non tech side, but as I thought more about it, you know sometimes we could all use a little bit less tech in our life. So I actually mm. have a book um, that I, uh, I I read it uh, about a, a year or so ago. And I cannot put it down and to the point that I think I'm going to go reread it again. But um, it's it's a book uh, by Claire North and it's called The First Fifteen Lives of Harry August. Um, it's, it's a very interesting book that is, you know, a little bit of, you know, interesting you know kind of dialogue and story, but also kind of wrapped up in this like sci fi time travel. Um, and the only part of the sci-fi of this book is really just this time travel concept where, you know, the the main character basically lives his life, um, you know, reaches his deathbed, dies, and then he basically is essentially reborn again, you know, whatever, at, you know, 50, whatever, 80 years ago, um, with all the same memories he had from his life. And, hmm. you know, it's basically the story about, like, him and all these other people that are just like him and how they're, you know, kind of going through their lives and stuff and – um, you know, highly recommend it. I, I could not put it down um when I when I was reading it. It's uh and I, I like I still think about it today. I'm just like, man, that was really good book. <laughs> Very cool. What was the title again? Uh so it's the first fifteen lives of Harry August and uh, I'll just drop the link. In yeah, somewhere. we'll make sure
1: we'll, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, great. Um, so continuing with that theme, I have a, a book as well, but um, I, I've been listening to it as an audiobook. I mentioned this in one of the earlier shows. Uh, I, had, um, I had listened to... Uh, the Way of Kings uh, by Brandon Sanderson on uh, as an audiobook, and uh, it took me like a month. It's like super dense and and super long as far as a, an audiobook. It's about forty five hours. Um, but this past month, I listened to the sequel, which uh, is Words of Radiance, and it just continues in an awesome universe. Um, and so I wanted to. Uh, it's a little bit duplicative from our earlier show, but I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to it yet again because. Um, it's two of ten books uh, that uh, the only the first two are out, but the the plan is that it's going to be a series of uh, of actually five and five books um, that he's uh, uh, he's writing, and the third one comes out later this year. I think November is when it's scheduled, and it's great. It, it's such an interesting world. Um, but Brian, you'd been mentioned. You'd mentioned the Mist, the uh, Yes, the Mistborn uh, yes, series. The Mistborn I series. So yeah. I, I listened
0: to a couple of the books. Um, so yeah. again, so I mentioned this before. I'm I'm generally don't listen to a lot of uh, a lot of fantasy books, but I love the these books. And uh, as as Brian mentioned, they're. Uh, You know, I think all of his books are probably 40, 45 hours. So Mm. if you're an Audible subscriber, I mean, that's one way to make your credits last. (laughs) Yeah, get your money's worth.
1: (laughs) So that's my plan. (laughs) My next credit is in the first Mistborn book. They're absolutely great. Yeah, that's good to hear. And and apparently they're in the same universe. Uh, They actually take place on different planets, but... uh, They're in the same universe, and so, like, there's some characters, apparently, that, like, cross over uh, between the books. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, so it sounds like it's a really interesting, like, overarching universe as well. But, man, the first two books have me hooked. I absolutely love the characters, so I highly recommend
0: it. So that that wraps up another episode. Uh, Be sure to check out our website at codemonkey.fm or email us at feedback at codemonkey.fm. And we have, uh, we also have a Slack channel, so you can check us out there or uh, our website, and there's links on the website for all of those.
1: Thanks. And uh, hey, if you like this episode, uh, please do us a favor and review us on your favorite podcast finder of choice, uh, whether it's iTunes or Google Play, uh, Overcast or another one. Uh, we would really it would really help us out to get heard by more people. Um, so uh, thanks again to Pete. It's- Uh, It was an awesome conversation. It was great to uh, uh, meet you. And uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.